All right. Well, let's dig into Psalm 145 together. Psalm 145. Oh. That's not Psalm 145. There we go. All right, Psalm 145. Just a quick note. As we know, we are reaching the end of the Psalms, which means I'm thinking through what we're going to do next. Um, I would like to continue doing this format, um, and I'm thinking through the book. So if you have any favorite books, I really want to do this. I heard of Hebrews. Do we have a second? Hebrews would be a lot of fun. Hebrews would be a lot of fun. I thought about Hebrews. I thought about going real, you know, going all out and do Romans. That would be yeah. intense, um, but, but really good. If there's any other books, you're like, ooh, this would be great to journal through, um, you can let me know. May or may not do it, but we'd love to hear your, uh, your thoughts. So we're reaching, reaching. <laughs> I heard Ezekiel. No, we're not doing Ezekiel. <laughs> not at all. There we go. All right. Well, let's just pray one more time, ask God to guide us as we look in Psalm 145 together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you so much for uh, being a glorious and great God that we can worship and praise. And I pray that, uh, that this act that we do tonight, even tonight would be an act of worship um, as we consider who you are and what you've done for us. In your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, let's read through Psalm 145 together. A song of praise. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raised, raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love them, love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak of the praise of the Lord. Let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. As we read through, was there a portion, a verse stuck out to you, observation you want to throw out there, anything like that as we were reading through. Yes, Diane. Which, I'm sorry? Eight. Verse 8. 
The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Now, just a question to throw out there. Does that sound familiar? I want you to think about that, all right? We'll get there. But that is an incredible description of God. Any other, anything else? Yes, yeah, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Absolutely. Yeah, Mike. Uh, in 6 and 7, it goes awesome deeds, greatness, abundant goodness, and righteousness. Yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, even, the, even, the verse, even more verses, your majesty, your wondrous works, in verse 5, awesome deeds, greatness, abundant goodness, righteousness, um, so many different descriptions of different adjectives and everything to describe just how magnificent and glorious God is in his works. Good. Anything else? Yes? 19. Yeah, what a, what a comforting, comforting verse. Uh, and we'll get, we'll get to that as we, as we near the end, but that, his attribute that he, he fulfills the desire of everyone who fear him. What a comforting thought. David. A little bit of a contrast. It says in verse 7, the Lord is good to all. Mm-hmm. And then a little bit later, he destroys the wicked. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, and so um, there is a lot of language in here that talks about God's goodness and mercy over all his creation, everyone, right? And it says in the New Testament, he sends rain on the just and the unjust. So there's one sense in which God's goodness and mercy is experienced by all, whether you believe in him or not. You're taking advantage of his goodness just by taking a breath. But that does not mean that his saving goodness, his, his sanctifying grace is applied to everyone. In fact, it's only to those who fear him that that, that happens, and we'll see that contrast. Anything else? Yeah? There are a lot of verses that do mention the underlying theme of justice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. The, the, the theme of his kingdom and his reign is very, it's, it's all throughout here. And obviously, he is, he is a king of justice, and he reigns with justice. Um, that's absolutely something that we see in the psalm. Anything else? Well, if you were to sum up this psalm in one word, what would it be? Praise. I got just a spoiler, right? It's right there. All right. A song of praise. Just checking to see if you're paying attention, that's all. This is the last psalm in the, in the book of Psalms that's attributed to David. And it's also, we've seen this earlier, this is an acrostic psalm. Do you remember what an acrostic psalm is? It's where each line, each verse, begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. All right? And uh, that's intentional. That's an intentional structure. You don't see it in English but you see it in Hebrew. If you're looking Hebrew, you'd see the Hebrew alphabet one letter after the next from A to Z. And we've talked about how that, that might have served a number of purposes. It could have been a memory aid, you know, as they're teaching their children, you know, A to Z, you know what the next phrase is. It could be com- uh, communicating just comprehensiveness and completeness, right? God is the Alpha and Omega, uh, everything from A to Z, a complete treatment of a subject. Uh, but this is the last of the acrostic Psalms. There's several of these in the book of Psalms. The one, the one exception, and this is just you know, a fun little factoid for you, that, that there's, in, in, we don't have the letter N listed in, in most of our, uh, of our uh, English um, translations, 
However, and you might have seen this, did you notice as we were going through in the ESV, uh, verse 13 has this section in brackets right here? So this is the letter N, all right? So this would be M, N, O, only Hebrew letters, right? Um, in one Hebrew manuscript and in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were discovered, uh, the Septuagint version of the Old Testament and also the Syriac version of the Old Testament, this phrase is included, um, which would complete the acrostic. So in most of the copies we have of the Psalms, the letter N in the acrostic is missing. Um, and, uh, but in some of these, we do have some evidence that, that there might have, might have been this missing uh, this missing letter here. So if you're wondering what the bra brackets are, that's the translators indicating that there are some manuscripts that complete the acrostic, but not the majority of manuscripts. Um, so in case you're wondering what those brackets are, we'll talk a little bit more about that when we get there. Let's go back up to verse 1, Psalm 145. Verses 1 through 3 is, is just simply David introducing this theme of praise, and he is committing to praising God. We see he's praising my God and my king. Uh, there's the theme already of his kingship, his, his, his kingdom and authority. And David's the king of Israel, right? He's the king of Israel, and yet he sees God as his king. We see his language of resolve. I will, bless, I will extol you and bless your name. I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. And what else do we see about this praise? How is it described? Um, in, this, in these verses. How long does it last? Yeah, it's, it's forever and ever, forever and ever, all right? So this is unending praise. What is David describing here? I think he's describing that he wants his life to be a life of praise. I want my whole life, forever and ever, I want everything about me to be a life that is praising you, extolling you, blessing your name. And I wonder to what extent we see our lives in that way. I mean, God made us to be worshipers. Did you know that's, that's God's design for you? That he's made you to be a worshiper of him? And can we just reflect on our lives for a moment? Just think about your life, how you go about living. If our praise is to be constant and intentional, if we are to live a life of praise, what portion of your week or your day is defined as worship? You can't count Sunday, all right? Do you live a life of praise? Now, it doesn't mean you're singing all the time. It doesn't mean you're reading the Bible all the time. But it means that who you are, the very core of your identity, is all about attributing praise and honor and glory to God. Does that characterize your life? Is that what gives you meaning? Your very purpose? Do you see the very core of who you are as a worshiper? Or is it something else? We are supposed to live a life of worship. And look in verse 3. What word do we see repeated? Great. Yeah, great. Greatly. Greatness. All right. So there's a connection here. So we see that the Lord is great. And what else needs to be great? Our praise. Okay. So how great is the Lord? Well, it's unsearchable, right? How great, how magnificent is God? He is so great, we cannot even explore the extent of that greatness. 
And this first line of verse 3, I think, is saying that our praise should be directly proportional to his greatness. Consider how great God is, and that's how you should praise him. The Lord is great, so he should be greatly praised. Right? As great as he is, so should be our, our praise. So the question is, how great is his greatness? It's unsearchable. It's incomprehensible. Do our lives reflect that worship? In fact, ask yourselves this question. If the world understands God's greatness based on the greatness of your worship, how great would they consider God to be? We're going to see in this psalm that our worship is actually a testimony. It actually has an impact, an inter- a cross-generational impact. And if those who don't know God see your allegiance to him, your life as a life of worship, how great is God to you? And that'll be how great God is to them. Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. Any thoughts, questions, before we move on to this next section here, verses 4 through 7? Starting in verse 4, David starts to focus on a cross-generational worship. We see this right here. One generation shall commend your works to another and declare your mighty acts. What's being described here? Well, worship is being passed down from one generation to the next. We talk about the importance of passing down instruction from generation to generation. But what about worship? Right? You know, if you're a parent, if you have young kids in the home, you know your, one of your jobs is to instruct them in the admonition of the Lord, to raise them up in the knowledge of God. What about your worship? Is your worship being passed down to the next generation? The worship of your life is incredibly instructive and, in fact, better retained and remembered by your children than even basic instruction. When your children view your life, do they see a life of worship, a life that makes God big? And, and, and sometimes it's, it's surprising, it's shocking, and I'm experiencing this now even you know, with, with little kids myself. But do we realize how much our kids view their, base, their, view their idea of God based off of us? in how we view God. And so many times when I've talked to people that, that, that describe how they, you know, they've become disillusioned in church or they, they've left the faith, right? One thing that, that has often said is that, well, God just didn't seem real in the home. That I didn't experience like the gospel actually changing people in the home. I didn't see... I didn't see that, that genuineness, genuine love for God. It was more just, you know, church on Sunday, you know, kind of going through the motions. What's missing there? It's the life of worship. It's, it's our kids seeing a heart that loves Christ and lives a life of worship to Christ. Is our worship being passed down from generation to generation to generation? Notice the amplified language describing God's glory and majesty in these verses. Mike kind of pointed out some of these. On the glorious splendor of your majesty, on your wondrous works, they shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and sing aloud of your righteousness. 
I mean, it's, it's one thing after another. He's describing over and over again how glorious and how majestic God is. In fact, look at verses 5 and 6, how both the congregation and the individual are included. The first line is they. The second line is I. Uh, sorry, uh, verses 6 and 7. Uh, they, I, they, and... Oh, hold on. I. Okay, you get the idea. All right. There's this congregational aspect, and the psalmist is almost leading them in it. He is leading the, the congregation in worship, and the, the goal is for it to be cross-generational. In verses 8 and 9, we actually see an example of this cross-generational worship. In verse 8 specifically, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And I asked earlier, does this sound familiar? Some of you said yes, so now you've got to put your money where your mouth is and tell me why it sounds familiar. Anyone know why this verse sounds familiar? Other than you've heard it before. What's that? The word hesed. Ah, the word hesed. All right, absolutely. We've talked about hesed, that steadfast love. But this verse as a whole shows up many places in Scripture. Does anyone know the first place that it shows up? It's in the Old Testament. Exodus. Exodus, very good. Do you remember when in Exodus? What's going on? That's right. That's right. So he, God, or Moses says, God, show me your glory. And he, he, he puts them in the, kind of the crevice of the rock, passes before him, and declares, he said, I will declare to Moses my goodness. Which is an interesting note, that when, God, when, when Moses asks God to show me your glory, God shows him his goodness. What's the greatest picture of his glory? It's how good he is. And in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, it says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So verse 8 here is a quote of that. And you'll see this quote all throughout Scripture. And it began with God himself revealing, this is who I am. If I want you to know something about me, this is what I want you to know. That I'm gracious, that I'm merciful, I'm slow to anger, and I abound in steadfast love. That's who he wants, what you want. He wants you to know about him. He's the very core of, what, of who he is. He's a God of mercy, compassion, patience, and loyal, faithful love. And here's the interesting thing. What are we talking about? We're talking about a cross-generational worship. Right here in verse 4. And this is an example of it. A self-revelation of God that began with Moses. And then that description is passed down from generation to generation to generation. Again, going back to just how we should apply this to our own lives. What view of God are you passing on to the next generation? If your kid's view of God is defined by how you have portrayed him, do they have an accurate view of God? Would they look at verse 8? The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And when they conclude, that is the picture of God that I have received. Now there's more. There's obviously more to God. But this is the core of who God is. 
Does the view of God look like this verse, or does it look like something different? God has given us his word, revealed himself to us so that we can pass on that knowledge, not only through our instruction, but through our worship as we praise and glorify God. The younger generation underneath us hears that, catches on to that, and and joins in worship with us so that the generation after them will continue worshiping God according to his character. The Lord is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And then verse 9 the Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all he has made. And this it broadens the description of verse 8 to impact everything. All creation, everything he has made, experiences the goodness and mercy of God. Not just his covenant people, his chosen people. Now we're going to see at the end of the psalm that there is a special type of love and grace and mercy that his special people do experience that no one else does. But here we see that there is a graciousness and a mercy and a goodness that all his creation have experienced because of who he is. And we'll see this further defined in the second half of the psalm. Any questions? Thoughts? Yes? Right, absolutely, because you know, down here in verse 20, the wicked he will destroy, yeah. right? And so there is, this, there is a universal experience of God's goodness that all of his creation experience, but that does not mean it's an eternal goodness that they will experience for all eternity, correct? Yes? Um, I noticed that in verses 4 through 7, it kind of talked about how to go about this commending, declaring, meditating, mm-hmm. um, and singing. All these attributes of yeah, yeah. We see different, different actions almost. Declare your mighty acts. Meditate on your wondrous works. There's declare again. Um, and sing aloud. And I think it's interesting how, how meditate is on here because you really can't have the sing aloud and the declare without the meditating. It has to be coming from inside of you, right? You, you know who God is. You're thinking about who he is, resulting in a declaration, a singing aloud, so that other generations, other people can, can experience and hear it as well. Any other, other thoughts before we continue? Verses 10 through 13, some commentators view this section as the central part of the book, connecting the first half which is kind of a broad invitation for all of creation to experience God, God's greatness, to the second half, which actually really explores specific examples of God's goodness and greatness. Verse 10 says, all your creation gives thanks to you. Right here, all your works, so this is everything, gives thanks to you. But then, also, specifically, your saints will bless you. So all of creation, Psalm 19, the the heavens declare the glory of God, right? There is a universal declaration of God's goodness and praise from his creation, but his people specifically are called to be heralds of his greatness. And what are we as his saints called to do? Well, here we see some verbs. They, meaning the saints, shall speak of the glory of your kingdom, tell of your power, 
to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds in the glorious splendor of your kingdom. We are, we are called as his saints to speak, to tell, to make known, to declare and proclaim God as the king of all creation, the mighty and powerful God. Verse 13 talks about how we are to proclaim the eternal reign and dominion of God. He, is the ever, he has an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures throughout all generations. Now there's a verse, another verse in the Old Testament where almost the same phraseology is used and it's used by another king describing God's kingdom. Does anyone know which king used this language? Nebuchadnezzar. I'm going to call him Neb, all right, because it's shorter. (laughs) Daniel 4, 1 through 3. Daniel 4, 1 through 3, you know the story of King Nebuchadnezzar. He's, he was puffed up. He was prideful. He looked at his kingdom, and he just was boasting about it, saying this is the greatest kingdom in all the world. God humbles King Nebuchadnezzar, makes him act like an animal for seven years, and then finally he comes back to his senses. And we actually have verses in Scripture written by King Nebuchadnezzar. Isn't that crazy? Daniel 4, chapters, uh, chapter, Daniel chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, says, King Nebuchadnezzar, To all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders of the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Almost almost the same exact phrases as we see in Psalm. Now, if this is written by David, that means this was written before King Nebuchadnezzar. So was he quoting Psalm 145 when he, was, when he was declaring God's praise? Perhaps. This King Nebuchadnezzar is a powerful king who finally recognizes who is the eternal king. And even as he describes in, verse, in, in Daniel chapter 4, the greatness of his kingdom is seen in his mighty deeds. That's how he knows how great and glorious God's kingdom is. So God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion endures throughout all generations. He is the perfect God. He's a just God. He is the king of all. And this is what we are called to make our lives all about. Now, before we go on to the second half of the psalm, let me zero in on this phrase in brackets here that we talked about earlier. Um, If this is a part of the psalm, it would serve as an introductory or summary phrase for the section to follow. God is faithful and kind in everything he does, and let me tell you how, all right? He's faithful in all his words, kind in all his works, and then here's some descriptions. Whether or not this phrase is part of the original doesn't actually change the interpretation of the passage. In fact, you see an almost synonymous verse right down here in verse 7, right? Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. Um, You know, quick note here, right? There are portions of scripture like this where some people say, well, this is included, and other people say, this is not included. And, and, and sometimes we can hear that and be like, oh man, I'm, I'm not, how do we know? How do we know what's in Scripture? How do we know what's the real thing? And it can be a cause of uncertainty. But this is actually not a cause for concern or worry at all. Because in situations like this, where there's, there's something like this, you're like, hmm, is that in there, is it not? In none of those occasions... Does, it, does the inclusion or exclusion of the phrase in question 
change, alter, or contradict the theology and teaching of Scripture at all. In other words, if we included them, they would add nothing to our doctrine. If we excluded them, they would take nothing away. And, so, and to me, in fact, that, that truth actually increases my confidence that we have the Word of God. We have His truth preserved. And so, whether or not this, this phrase is in there to complete the, uh, the, uh, the ABC pattern, um, we don't know. But even if it was or isn't, it doesn't change the message or the, uh, or the doctrine of the psalm at all in the slightest. Let's go on to verse, any questions on that? Yes? So those words are complementary. Complementary to the, to the scripture. Yeah, absolutely. Sure, sure. Yeah, any other questions on, on that? It's a, that's a, it's a big old topic that we probably won't dig into too much right now. But you can ask a question if you want, and then I'll say some other time. <laughs> All right, verse 14. Let's, we're going to see God's greatness. We've been talking a lot about his greatness, the majesty of his works, all of these things. And then here in the second half, we're going to zero in. We're going to see some specifics about what his greatness is. And here we're going to see the greatness of his eternal kingdom described. Now look in verse 14. He upholds all who are fallen, raises up all who are bowed down. He opens his hand. He gives them their food in due season. He satisfies the desire of every living thing. He's near to all who call on him. What kind of king are we describing here? A personal king. Good. What else? Yeah? Gracious. Very gracious. Merciful. Merciful. Now, when we think of a king, we, we, you know, we think of someone aloof, someone who's distant on his throne. But when the psalmist describes the greatness of God's kingdom, what does he emphasize? He emphasizes his grace. One, one commentator <clears throat> says it this way. What sets it apart from all earthly kingdoms is that it is eternal, and that its greatness is its grace. Another writer says this, Where is the cosmic excellence of the kingdom seen? Not in symbols of earthly pride and power, but in gracious condescension to the fallen and the crushed, in a gracious care which provides for the wants of every living thing. When you think of God's greatness, what's the first thing that you think of? I mean, we could think of the greatness of his creation. We could think of the power of his glory. We can think of all of these things that are magnificent, and those are true. But first and foremost, when, when God describes his own greatness, what does he point to? He points toward his grace. He actually points toward his condescension, which we see in the, in the greatest possible way in, in Christ's condescending to us, to leaving his place in heaven, coming to us and taking on the form of a servant. That is the greatness, the greatest picture of his grace and glory. So we don't want to view God's greatness in terms of separateness or distance, but actually God is great because he is close. We know he is great because he is near. And look how this is described in the following verses. Verse 14. Actually, verses 14 through 16, it's kind of a connected, kind of similar idea together. It's describing that God is a king who cares for all of creation. The Lord upholds all who are falling. He sustains, is what this word is, is, is communicating. 
The Lord upholds all who are falling, raises up all who are bowed down, right? So here's our problem. Stumbling, we're falling, we're bowed down. And what does God do? God upholds, God raises up all who are bowed down. In fact, if you even look at our, our English word, depressed. Do you know what that, the etymology of that word is? It's actually pretty, pretty straightforward. To be pressed down. You know, that's how it feels. Just this pressure that's weighing down on you, bowing you down. And God is a God. His greatness is seen in His grace. And He is a God that raises up all who are bowed down. And again, we see the, just the, the broadness of this. In fact, we see it later on. The eyes of all look to you. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. And here in this passage, he's really focusing on all of creation. Psalm 104, uh, 27 through 28, says this. These all look to you. Talking about creatures, creation. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. We see this in the book of Job, right? When, when God is questioning Job and asking, have you done this? Have you done this? He asks Job this. Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? So 15 and 16 is communicating the same idea that everyone is dependent on God. Whether you believe in God or not. Right, that's seen right here in this first phrase. The eyes of all look to you. Our very breath is dependent on God. Our daily bread is dependent on God. And God gives them their food in one Due season. What is this communicating? It's in his time, isn't it? It's in his time. He knows the proper time. His way is best. Everything is dependent on God. I love this description in verse 16 as well. You open your hand and you satisfy the desire. God does not close his fist in reluctance. He's a generous God. He's a good God. He's a giving God. You satisfy, satisfy the desire of every living thing. And what is a general truth here? As we said, this is general to all creation. We're going to see this specifically applied to God's people right down here in verse 19. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. All right, so we have to think in our minds, what's the difference here? In what ways does he satisfy the desire of every living thing, but as opposed to the way he satisfies the desire of those who fear him? Is it the same type of satisfaction? Is it the same thing that he's giving in both of those cases? Or is it something different? But here we see broadly in all of creation, God is gracious, he's good, he cares for his creation. Verse 17, again, serves as an introductory. If verse 13 right here, serves as the introduction to this section. Verse 17, which is kind of parallel, would serve as introduction to this section. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, kind in all his works. And then verses 18 through 20, zero in on God's people. What are the phrases that we make us know 
that it's God's people who are in view here. Okay, so call on him. Those who fear him. All right, those are the two main, uh, verse 20. All who love him. So there's a special way in which God cares for his special people. There's a special concern and loyal love that God shows to those who have a special relationship for, with him. And so while goodness and mercy is experienced by all of his creation, no one experiences it like God's people experience it. And let's just highlight how God interacts with his people. What do we see? Who is God to his people? He's near. Good. What else? He hears. What else? And saves, right? Preserves. He fulfills the desire. Let's look at verse 18 a little bit. God is near to all who call on him. We see the phrase, the, the description of nearness of God. I think the main thing in question is that he is ready and eager to answer our prayers. He is near. Because in, in Psalms, in other Psalms, in Lament Psalms, when, when a psalmist is complaining about his prayer not being answered, how is God described? As far away. Far away, right? And he feels far away. But here we see God is near. God is near to those who call on him. Why is this phrase important? Specifically this last little section right there. Yeah. It's kind of like the parable uh, <laughs> of the Pharisee and the woman in the closet. Mm -hmm. People who are praying but not really. Yeah. So there's a genuineness there that we see. Um, good. Anything else that we would, this brings out, do you think? The ones that truly believe in him. Okay, so there's a true belief there. Okay. He knows the heart. He does know the heart, absolutely. And he can tell if you're telling the truth or not when you go to prayer. That's exactly true, yeah. In fact, this phrase, in truth, is the idea of, of, of faithfully, or, you know, faithful. You're calling in faith. They're calling on God faithfully because they know God is faithful, right? So this is a calling based on a, off a knowledge of who God is, in truth, right? When you truly know who God is, that's, that's what produces that genuine prayer that, that is actually coming from the heart. That's something that, 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 that is real, not lip service, right? It's not say this prayer, say these words, and, and God will come to your every, every bidding. That's not how this works. To those who truly know him and, and are calling on him in truth, he is near to those people. He's close by. He's right there. Do you know that God is close to you? Is that, is that who God is? Is he, is he near? And, and sometimes, when, when is that nearness seen the most? When you're weakest. When you're weakest. Okay. What's that? When you're hurting, right? When, when things are really bad. Isn't that incredible how that's, that's the, the times when God actually feels the closest to you? You know what? I, I think, though, maybe he's just as near as the old 
Yes. That's, yeah, and that goes to the in truth part, right? It's, we, we're, we're more attentive. We need him more, and we're looking for him more. But he's always, he's, it's not that he's only near in the difficult times, but we, we yearn for him more in those difficult times, and that's when we realize that he is near. Yeah. Yes, Becky. Okay. I think also that when, when we are hurting and when we're you know, weak, we can recognize our need for the other things other than the things we don't need. Right, yeah. When we always need him, right? We saw that, we see that, that you know, the eyes of all look to you. We're always constantly dependent on God. But uh, sometimes we, we, we only sense his nearness when we, when we really need him. And if only we would sense that nearness and have that dependence on him all the time. So he's near. Did we? Oh, there we go. All right. Verse 19. God fulfills the desire of those who fear him. Do you see God as someone who satisfies? Again, of those who fear him. And I said earlier, earlier he says he satisfies the desire of all living things. What's going on here? This is the people. So how would you describe the difference between him fulfilling the desire for those who fear him versus how he fulfills the desire of all living things? Well, all living things he makes sure has water and food and okay. that kind of thing. But the people he makes sure or gives them any blessings in, in, in various ways, depending on their needs. Okay. If they believe in him, in truth. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So what makes you think that it's that that's that he is their desire? Yeah, well and and, and uh, who do they fear? Him. Right? So again, those who fear God are those whose attention and devotion is directed toward God. So for those peep type of people, what's their desire? God is, right? It's not, is it, is it simply material things, right? Is it, oh, I, you know, food and clothing and wealth and all these things? No, that's not what God-fearers desire. God-fearers desire God, right? They desire the love and the faithfulness that God provides. David. I think it's Psalm 37, 4. Uh, is it 27, 4? Delight yourself in the Lord. Oh, yes. And he will give you the desires of your Right. So, yes. Not only does you know you're delighting delighting in the Lord, and I think He actually says He gives you the desires of your heart, He puts them into your heart, and He fulfills them. Yes. Yeah, because if, if you're delighting yourself in the Lord, then where is your desire directed? Right. It's in line with what God has. Um, I, I asked twenty-seven four because that's the reference that I had down here, and I'm like, oh, maybe He knows. Um, <laughs> Psalm 27.4 says this, One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Right? 
Someone who fears God, his desire, his craving is directed that way. And, 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 and to those people, God fulfills that desire because he is near, he is close. So if you truly fear God, what do you desire? You desire the things that he provides. You desire him. If you desire wicked things, number one, you don't fear him. And he's not going to fulfill those desires. He loves you too much to do that. I believe it's um, that personal relationship. Mm-hmm. I think it's a relationship with God. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a close relationship with God when you... When he is who you want, you you want to have that closeness with him, and he readily grants that to those who fear him. And we see how that fleshes out. He hears their cry. He saves them, right? If If these two lines are kind of parallel to each other, then their cry is related to their desire, right? I'm crying out, you know, meet my desire, and, and, and he fulfills the desire of those who fear him. Verse 20 Again, lest we fall into this idea of this kind of a universalism where everyone gets the same blessings from God, uh, verse 20 kind of shatters that idea, right? Uh, The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy, right? There There is a general goodness of God that every breathing thing experiences. But Romans 2 says, do you not know that the goodness of God is meant to lead you to repentance. And it is the wicked that take the goodness of God that they receive every single day, and they either reject the Creator or credit themselves for those gifts and seek to use those gifts for their own purposes. Right? That's what wickedness is. And God says, yes, I, I give you all my goodness. I give you, I give you so many blessings. But those are not the same eternal blessings that my people receive, those who trust me and love me. There is justice here. Any other thoughts on this section, the personalness, the closeness, the relationship that God has toward his people? Anything else you want to add before we move? Um, um, verse 20, the Lord preserves all who love him. Mm-hmm. Well, he preserves us from hellfire. That's right, yeah. And, and, and it, I mean, because that's where you're going to wind up if you don't love him and believe him. Yeah, and so, so our, our, our relationship to God, how we view God, dictates how, how is God going to, you know, what's, what's God's stance toward us, right? And preserves obviously will include, you know, final punishment, preserving us from that, but also there's a sense in which he preserves through our lives as well, those who love him. Um, Romans 8, 20, all things work together for good to those who love him to those who are called according to his purpose. But that preservation is what God wills, not what we will. So preservation, what we have in mind as God is preserving you, may not be what we have in mind. Right. His will may not be what we have in mind. Absolutely. I think it's a preservation in terms of giving us stability, giving us us trust and faith in him even when we are going through the rocky times. At the end, no matter what we go through, mm-hmm. we Absolutely. And, and, and I think this idea of preserves also echoes what we see earlier about him upholding those who are falling and raising up all who are bowed down, right? That he's, he's, he's close, he's paying attention, he knows what's going on. 
and he's, he's walking us through life. Anything else? Yeah, yeah. So if you, if you fear God, that directs your attention to him and you see your need for him. And that's, that's the epitome of wisdom right there, right? That you know that wisdom rests in him, that preservation rests in him. It all begins with the fear of God. It's that beginning of wisdom. And so that second line of verse 19 is almost like, what does wisdom look like, right? It's crying out to God, knowing that he is the, he is the only one who can fulfill the desire of your heart and save you. Anything else? The conclusion of verse 21 circles back to what it, what it begins with. This commitment to praise. When you contemplate God's goodness, right? We just spent time contemplating God's goodness. And we've been discussing it. We've been talking about his nearness and his, the satisfaction that he provides in preserving us and hearing our cry and saving us. What should be the result of thinking about that and meditating on it and thinking about how wonderful and good God is? Speak about it. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord. Don't keep this to yourself. Shout it out. Let all flesh Bless this holy name forever and ever. So here's the personal commitment. My mouth is going to praise. And then it concludes with this invitation to all creation. All you who experience God's goodness. From nature to humans. Right? Everything. Bless his holy name forever and ever because he is worthy of it. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. Here are all the ways that he is great. And so my mouth will speak about this. In fact... If we were to zoom out and, and look at this whole psalm, we begin, as I mentioned, in the first half with this general description of God's goodness. He is the, just the, the overwhelming sense of his glory and awe and power. In the second half is the psalmist saying, let me tell you all the ways that he has been good to me, that I have experienced his goodness. I've experienced his nearness, his, his, the satisfaction that he gives, hearing my cry, preserving me. And then he speaks about it, right? And this, what, what would this psalm look like if it were you writing it, right? What are, the, what are the specifics of God's goodness toward you that you would be speaking about? How would you be proclaiming the praise of the Lord through what he has done for you? And not, not that this is a sales pitch, but this coming Sunday night, right? For the praise service, that's exactly what we're trying to do. We're taking the goodness of God that we are experiencing, what we see him to be, what, he's, what he has been doing in our lives, and then our mouths will speak of those things so that all generations will praise the Lord. So even as we come to this Sunday night and we think about what, what glory can I bring to the Lord? What, what praise can I give him because of his goodness toward me? Be praying about the impact that that will have on the others in the room. That it's his personal commitment that results in this invitation to all others to praise the Lord. And you've experienced this, right? When you've been in a context where people are sharing and, 
and, and someone is just expounding God's goodness and his, his praiseworthiness and everything he's done, what does it make you want to do? It makes you want to praise the Lord too, right? It, it, it reminds you of how good he is and it, and, it, and it helps you come to a place of worship and you're blessing his holy name for what he has done. And it helps you actually think about the ways that God has been good and gracious to you. And that's, that's the joy, that's the beauty of having a church family that we can, we can do that with. We can worship the Lord and invite others to join in so that all flesh will bless his holy name forever and ever. Is your life a life of praise? Is it the mission of your day? Is it the purpose of your very existence? There is nothing more satisfying, fulfilling, or purposeful Making your day all about you is exhausting and empty, and it's not satisfying. But that's how we go about most of our days. It's about me. It's about what I want. It's my satisfaction. It's my desires. It's my priorities. It's my plan. And we're, we, that's our default mode because we're, we're sinners. We, we're, pride, we're prideful. But when we actually come to grips with what we're designed to be, we're designed to be worshipers. We, were, we are hardwired to give glory and praise to God. We are made in his image. We're supposed to reflect his image. And when we actually devote our life to that, where my life is about him, my life is about giving praise and glory to him, you know, that's actually where you find satisfaction and purpose and joy. But what does the, what does the deceiver try to do? He tries to tell us that the exact opposite will happen right? If you make your life a life of praise, where you're giving all the glory to God, that's miserable, right? The satisfaction is found in living for yourself, right? It's the exact opposite. And if we grasp our design, that we are to live a life of praise, as it says at the very beginning of the psalm, I will extol you, I will bless your name forever and ever, I will, every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever, that's where great joy is found. Make your life a life of praise so that those around you will actually experience that praise and catch on and praise the Lord along with you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are near. And Lord, even as we talk to you right now, we know that you are near. We know that you hear. We know that you answer our cry and you save us and you preserve us. These are not just black and white words on a page. These are not just academic exercises. This is truth and reality. This is who you are. This is the God that you are. Lord, I pray that you'd help us all to look in our own lives to see how your goodness has touched each one of us. From the, the general blessings that all creation experiences to the special blessings that your people experience. Help us identify your goodness in our lives so that we may praise you in the good times and the bad so that others may glorify you as well. I pray that would be our heart. I pray that would be our life. And I pray that we'd be characterized by that worship your son's name we pray. Amen.